We have heard from one party of the trio, Peter Bogosian, but now it is a delight and a pleasure to introduce yet another. This is Helen Pluckrose that's joining us today. She is the editor of Aereo magazine. Now, Aereo is a, an opinion and analysis digital magazine which is focused on current affairs and in particular on humanism, culture, politics, human rights, science and, well, just in general free expression. And the article and periodical, I should say, is named after Milton's speech in defense of freedom of speech itself. As much as is possible, Aereo's aim is to avoid polarizing tribalistic stances and prioritize instead intellectual balance, charity, honesty, and rigor. Let me give you a little bit about her background. She is a fellow Brit, I'm very, very proud and happy to say. Her education is quite extensive. She did her undergraduate study in literature at the University of East London and received her master's degree in early modern studies at Queen Mary, again, University of London. Wonderful to have you here. Um, you have been having quite a ride for some months regarding this whole situation. Do you regret it? <laughs> no, no. I, we, we haven't quite got to the, the point of regretting it. We we did think we, we might. We almost expected to, but... Um, but really, it's. Um, I, I think there, there have been more positive than negative results so far. Well, is it one of those circumstances when you know who to drop off your Christmas card list? <laughs> yeah, we, we've. Um, yes, we, we, we've um, had. Well, most of the people that we we thought would um, attack us have done so. We've um, we've not been disappointed in in too many of the people that that we had hopes of, and we've had some unexpected. Um, surprises. So um, I'm generally feeling positive. It, it went down better and it was understood more as, as we intended it to be than, than we thought it would be. Well, it's not a superficial lock. I mean, this was uh, a deliberate intention to indeed expose the fact that the emperor does have no clothes. And as you wrote uh, in, a, in a piece for Aereo itself, you said, this is the primary point of the project and referring to uh, bogus knowledge to reveal that it is not knowledge production at all. It's sophistry. That is, it's a forgery of knowledge that should not be mistaken for the real thing. The biggest difference between us, referring to yourselves, and the scholarship is that we are studying by emulation, is that we know we made things up. And therein lies the suggestion that others may not know that they're making things up. Are they that delusional? I, I think so, yes, because the the idea of knowledge in, in the sense that it's being used really doesn't um, require uh, evidence or, or reason. We started with our conclusions. We assumed that um, that male male attraction to women is is always um, you know misogynistic and patriarchal, and then we found that. So. That, I think most people would say, is not knowledge. That's an ideology and then reading things through it. This is deliberate confirmation bias. Uh, but the people that, um, that you'll find in our references would consider that legitimate scholarship. Helen, we have younger listeners joining us all the time, I'm very happy to say, and they may not be familiar with the term epistemology, or excuse me, let me rephrase that, epistemological uh, uh, studies and the merits of epistemology, basically why you know for certain or at least hope you know how you know what you think you know. Um, that wouldn't even seem to be a consideration with many of the persons you've exposed. Why is that? 
Um, I'm, I'm not quite sure what um, of what you're asking. I mean, they they do give um, a lot of thought uh, to epistemology, but they, there's a, a real effort to push back at evidence and reasoned based epistemology. They're they're going with um, standpoint epistemology mostly, and, and standpoint epistemology is when we think that because um, knowledge is a cultural construct and it's uh, constructed by systems of power within society, people in different positions towards to that power uh, will have different knowledges. So there will be uh, women's knowledge, which has been um, un- undervalued because male knowledge has taken its part, and then there'll be um, the knowledge of, of people of colour, which has been unfairly dismissed for white Western knowledge. So it's very much... Well, it, it, it really is, is essentially a kind of stereotyping, a kind of um, continuation of what Edward Said called uh, Orientalism, where we think, where he argued with, with some merit, that the, what the West constructs itself in opposition to the East, and it says, we are rational, you are superstitious. We are scientific, you uh, use magical thinking. And so they, there's this back and forth where the West constructs itself as rational, reasonable, liberal in opposition to the East. And this is um, a kind of standpoint of epistemology. But what's happening now is that we're seeing this be reproduced, but with the idea of saying that the, the Western knowledge is, um, has been unfairly promoted and it now needs, and it's inherently oppressive to go with science and reason, and we need instead to go with experience and feelings. And, I mean, apart from the fact that that this is a a very dubious epistemology in the first place, it also necessarily puts people of colour, minority sexualities and women um, in the camp of people who aren't scientific and reasonable. Well, I think immediately of Karl Popper, for instance, with uh, with reference to to harsh science uh, and the uh, indication that it's on some level it's it's self blinding if you start with presumption. So it does happen in the hard sciences as well as the social sciences. But the reason I mentioned I mentioned an epistemological uh, advent, if you will, or, or, or uh, intention to get things right, it would seem to be absent. Um, vis-a-vis by the very experience that you and your two colleagues have been through. I mean, uh, there doesn't seem to be the academic rigour there to make sure, well, what's the reasoning? Yeah, that, that, you're exactly right. You, you've picked on the, the vital difference here. Of course, within science, there is still um, human bias. There is still um, error um, and wishful thinking and, um, and mistakes being made because... Uh, people have been overconfident in um, assumptions that they held already. The point is that science, the scientific method, that the approach, when done properly, sets things up in order to correct for this. It doesn't always work. But the idea is still there that we want evidence, we want things to be replicable. We'll never be absolutely sure of truth. We, we have hypotheses and we try to disprove them. And all these methods are in place. We can say... For example, that the study which um, purported to show that vaccines cause autism um, is not sound because that system is in place. We care about evidence. We care about this, um, about statistics, about it being about scientific rigor. There is a means for discovering human error and bias within the 
kind of studies that um, Peter and Jim and I were looking at, that isn't there to begin with. There's um, a very explicit rejection of um, scientific and evidence-based knowledge and reason as constructs of the West and a need to actually go with experiential knowledge instead. Do you think that this agenda-driven type of research runs the risk of besmirching qualitative studies in general? I, I think it does because it, it can it can make... I mean, we, we are so simplistic, we humans. If there's a lot of nonsense coming out of um, disciplines around gender and race and sexuality, it's going to give grounds for people to dismiss um, any anything on that. And, and this, this is where we, we tend to polarise so simply. And, and if something is coming up which says that everything is patriarchal, men have an, a natural advantage in absolutely everything, and it's, it's silly, then people then get resistant to looking at founder evidence that there is a gender bias anywhere, or that there, racism does still exist, or that trans people do um, face discrimination and um, language is... Um, is, is often alienating. So we need to be particularly careful when we're looking at issues around social justice, like racial and gender and sexual equality, that we make everything as measured and evidence-based as possible. One of the areas that concerns me the most uh, working in academia is the burgeoning and increase of self-reflexive studies, the autoethnography studies. What do you think of them? I'm not sure how much influence they they have just yet, but they they do really um, show in one way how much reliance we're getting on experiential knowledge, because this often does just come out as something like a journal, which then people are bringing in um, other kinds of ideological um, research in order to interpret their own experiences. Well, they write, they, they write their own poems and they draw their own pictures and they put that as part of the sub- submission of the dissertation. Yes. I mean, this, I, I think in, in certain ways it can be um, useful to examine your own experiences and think where are they coming from and um, how have I interpreted this through what's happening in society. Yes, maybe there is a place for that, but this isn't research. This is, is more of a journal. It's perhaps an interesting magazine article. It's perhaps thought-provoking. It's not research. It's, it's not scholarship. So is it the equivalent of, of uh, you know, looking at one's own navel with fascination? It is, or it's, um, to, be, to, be, to be clearer, what it's more uh, similar to is the kind of um, um, writing that we get from, from my period when I, I looked at um, writing for and by women, and we have people like uh, Julian of Norwich and Amelia Lanya, and they're having dreams and they're interpreting their dreams as divine revelation and they're discovering what it is God needs everyone to do. And so they, they've, they're claiming a kind of authority from this in terms of, um, of divine revelation, even though this is one uh, subjective experience that they have then applied uh, ideological interpretations to. And that was considered authoritative within the the societies which were strongly were strongly Christian. This this was a kind of epistemology that dominated then. What we're in danger of seeing now, and is already um, very much evident in certain kinds of scholarship, 
is a knowledge which gives authority to this kind of self-examination or this um, motivated reasoning from an uh, identity perspective. Where did you get the courage to thwart this seeming endless stream of, of rubbish scholarship? I, I have quite a combative nature, I have to say. I, um, I ran into some problems doing my undergraduate and my, my master's, which really made it very difficult for me to do the scholarship I wanted to do and um, pass, to be honest. So I couldn't really go back and do my PhD until I can look at gender and um, power structures in society and the way women were using narratives um, to sort of get authority and autonomy for themselves, unless I can try and do this in an evidence-based way, which accepts that men and women have differences on average, that everything is not a construct of patriarchy. Um, so I am really quite motivated for personal reasons to get um, scholarship within the humanities to a, a more evidence-based and a, a broader um a broader perspective of, of different um, types of analysis. So there, there is that going. But, um, I mean, Jim and, and Peter and I, we, we came from the whole sort of new atheist moment. We were arguing very much against um, truth claims made uh, using faith-based epistemology and illiberal arguments uh, coming from, from religion, from Christianity, mostly because of well, purely because of where we are geographically but also from, from Islam and from other religions, which, which are, are frankly liberal to women and, um, and LGBTs. And so we have had this background in challenging irrationalism, um, unevidenced claims and illiberal values. When you so say when we, we, excuse me, uh, um, Helen, when you say we, you mean Peter Boghossian and James Lindsay? Yes. Okay. Yes, we, we've all, that's, that's where, although our backgrounds differ so much with Peter in philosophy and James in maths and me in, in history and literature, that is where we, um, we came together. How did you connect? Was it, was it a series of emails? Was it a phone call? Was it a gathering? Was it a seminar? When did you guys click? Uh, well, I, um, Peter and Jim met, I think, on, on Twitter, talking back and forth about things. I... I, I was aware of Jim on, um, on Twitter, but he was writing a book that he was talking about, and I, I took quite strong exception to it. The way that I thought it was going to, to be written was something that I disagreed with very strongly, so I argued with him a bit on Twitter, and then as soon as the book came out, I, I got it, and by the time I got to the end of it, I realised I didn't disagree with him at all and that he was absolutely right. And so I wrote a review of the book, which then um, got us us talking back and forth about his book, Everybody is Wrong About God. And then um, I also reviewed his, um, his second book, and I, I just kind of, um, I love the way Jim's brain works. It's, um, mm. it's, it's a very unique brain, and I, um, I like working with it. So when he suggested we write our manifesto against the enemies of modernity together, I, I enjoyed, I, I said, yes, let's do that. And I, I really enjoyed working with him, because where he does the bigger the bigger picture, the systems, the workings of things, and I have the ideological detail. So we work very well together. And then there is, is Peter, who's a really particularly skilled um, orator. 
So he is the person who can really make people see why they should care about this. He can he can sort of raise enthusiasm and he can um, he can kind of inspire people to care, as well as uh, being very funny. When a lot of the stuff that in our um, papers that was um, really absurd was was Peter. So there is there's a, a very good sort of working between the three of us three of us there and uh, yeah but uh, Jim was the um, was the connector he was connected to Peter and then he was connected to me and so we all came together that way. Helen um, our listeners have just prior to speaking with you heard me speak with uh, Peter Bogosian at some length and uh, he is part of what would be called the the, the new atheists but one of the things I noticed that was uh, absent was a virulent uh, hostility uh, towards theists, uh, certainly not toward, there was no hostility towards me. In fact, there was a, a kindredness uh, off microphone that we both discovered uh, while talking. Um, I want to ask you a question, seeing that you, you are also part of what would be called the, the new wave, if you will, of, of, of atheism. Uh, why is there a, a streak of just out and out uh, nastiness and hostility? Now, there are by people I admire, by the way. I mean, I Christopher Hitchens, I read his book, God is Not Great. I thought it was fabulous. I enjoyed it. I love his work and what have you. There's this presumption that Christians are going to be necessarily hostile to, to atheists when, from at least my observation, that's not the case. Um, obviously, with insecure types, you will get that. Um, but I actually find myself curiously attracted, although I am very much a theist, attracted to many of the people in the new the atheism group. Why is this, do you suppose? <laughs> you, uh, yeah, there was two questions there, um, so that there was well, it's probably eight, but we'll just hostile, we're, 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 and then there was, hmm? I said there was probably eight questions, but we'll pretend there was two. <laughs> Well, I, I think when, when it comes up first to, to why are people um, so hostile, I think that those people, that there always are people who are going to be very, very moralistic and, um, and, and aggressive towards in-groups and out-groups. And this is something that I hope none of us have done. And in Peter, in particular, his approach, if you've read um, the Manual for Creating Atheists, is very much about talking to people, about being prepared to change your own mind. He is always very focused on talking. It sometimes gets him into trouble because he'll have conversations with all kinds of people. And if um, and I know that somebody um, threatened him in the pub uh, recently, oh and, and yeah. he, he responded with, why don't we sit down and talk? <laughs> Good for him. That, that's Peter. He wants to talk to everyone. He is really very humanist he, he kind of believes that everybody is good really and, and if you can yes. talk then you can find common ground so that's very peter yes I, he's, he's a gentle spirit if i may invoke such a term he's um, he's a very warm person mm. yes um but peter, uh, jim you know with his everybody is wrong about god he was arguing against the combative atheist approach he didn't think that that helped he thought that um atheist movement was in danger of becoming a moral tribe itself and um, and then um, sort of coming more with this tribalism and polarization and, and he wanted us to move into a kind of post-theist stage where we stop um, having these constant battles. Mm. Hello? Hello? We've lost her. Okay, so um, y- you were uh, talking about Peter's approach and uh, thumb- somebody threatening to thump him in a pub and him, him saying, let's, let's have a chat. Yes, 
Yeah, that, that's very much. I don't think any of us have ever been the um, hostile and aggressive. I've, I've certainly argued very strongly um, with religious believers, but I've, I'm, I'm generally considered to be um, kind and polite. And um, Jim is, is very much opposed to, um, to the sort of hostile, um, combative approach as well. So I think there is the the atheist movement, as it was, it, it kind of um, split anyway, because we had those who were mostly focused on the, the moralistic issues, uh, women's rights, reproductive freedom, LGBT rights, and those who were focused most on epistemology, um, are the truth claims of religion true? Now, there's both of those elements in there, but we got a kind of social justice movement within atheism and then we got a kind of skeptic rationalist uh, movement as well and both of those had their extremes and it was a, a bit of a, a calamity to be honest and so it really is probably I think we all we all tend to think now better not to be part of a movement to have your epistemology to have your ethics to argue for them but not to be part of a, a tribe well, to lay aside the various fixations of debate style, what is your own opinion of Dawkins and Hitchens? Um, I, I oh, hang on, my my, uh, my opinion of, of Richard Dawkins is that I absolutely love and adore him. He is a um, he is a, he is a thoroughly um, nice man. He is a humanist. He is a um, He's a liberal, and I, I like him very much. I've um, I've had the good fortune to to meet him and have conversation with him, and um, yes, I, I I like him a lot. And I like the way he gave us in um, the God Delusion. He gave us a way into this idea that um, religion and science are non-overlapping, and um, in fact, when in fact religion often does make truth claims, which falls into the realm of science. So I I think that was a good. That was a very useful text. Christopher Hitchens, I have to say, and, and this, this is where I, I get into a lot of trouble with, um, with people, is that I, I understand that, that he did contribute an awful lot to the conversation that a lot of people um, think he was great. I, I just haven't, I haven't um, got the bug uh, with Christopher Hitchens, I'm afraid. I haven't found him as, as interesting as, um, as, as Dawkins or as, or as Sam Harris or Dennett. What would a serious and proper gender studies battery of research look like? I, there, there is so much that could be done in gender studies. At the moment, it is so being let down by starting with this assumption of uh, patriarchal oppression, that there's these systems of power in society and that any interaction between men and women must be governed by these sort of socially conditioned um, power structures and it, it's very difficult to get um real research i mean that there, there is some good stuff out there when there's uh, people who are looking into access to um contraception sexual health um, teenage pregnancy all this kind of a uh, thing which is still very empirically based but what i would i would absolutely love to do myself if i were to go back and do my phd i would want to do it in gender studies and then I would want to teach gender studies. And what we would have, we would have an element um, of biology, an element of psychology, and an element of sociology. So that people who wanted to study gender and um, sex differences would actually have a, 
an overlapping um, a base which is rooted in the biological differences, how they manifest in distributions of um, cognitive and psychological traits, and um, also the sociological, how um, gender roles have changed and how they're, they're, um, they're present in different places and different times and, and how they're affecting us now. I think if we were allowed to look at biology and psychology as, um, as biological realities alongside um, cultural aspects, then we could actually do something uh, really good for gender equality. That is, is how I would really like to see gender being studied because at the moment we we do have different expectations to a certain extent of men and women. Men and women do communicate differently to a certain extent. There are different interests, but we have a problem with people either wanting to deny any of these differences altogether or to um, say that they are set in stone and that every that men and women have particular roles. What we need to actually study gender and, and sex properly is a course which looks at biology, which looks at psychology, and which looks at sociology. And do, I, does do, do I hear a, an echo of Jordan Peterson? Uh, probably not, but I, I might accidentally be saying the same thing. <laughs> okay, well I think you are. Certainly when it comes to data uh, and the uh, studies that have been uh, drawn up looking at the, the, the inclination proclivities between men and women, that there are some natural differences which can be acknowledged whether there's a chorus of people that won't even entertain the idea. Oh yes, there, there are very many. I mean, I, I know that um, yeah, Dr. Peterson does uh, use some evolutionary psychology in his in his work, but there's, um, I, I particularly like David Buff. He's um, mm-hmm. somebody who's looked particularly at gender differences. And what, it, what is so interesting is because we are such overlapping populations, because for every trait which is um, particularly overrepresented in men, there are going to be women who have more of it than most men, and the other way around. I think an understanding of men and women as having differences on average, but this not telling us anything about any individual, is something that is important. It will allow us to uh, correctly interpret trends without confining anybody to any kind of gender role. So a, a, a rigorous gender studies would look at biological differences, they'd look at psychological differences, they'd look at how much of, a, of it was the same, how much variability there was, and it would look at what culture does with these. What and a- I, I think this is how you'd develop a knowledge of gender and, and sex that, that would benefit society. What a welcomed body of knowledge. Helen, I want to uh, conclude uh, by asking you, have you ever considered returning to doing a doctoral dissertation? Or uh, is it just the idea unappealing to you at this point? No, that is something I'd very much like to do. I mean, there there is really... I I took a year out to Mm -hmm. work up a PhD proposal. I was going to do medieval manuscripts, um, but because this was mostly because there is something I can still... There are still right and wrong answers. I can translate, I can transcribe, I can collect data, mm-hmm. and that's still allowed in medieval manuscripts. But what I would really like to do is look at gender roles historically. So I would love to be able to go back and do that. Well, Helen, we hope to get James Lindsay at some point. So let me ask you just for grins and uh, giggles here. Is there any question that you think I should ask him that wouldn't necessarily come to mind that might make him laugh? 
very difficult to make James laugh. That's the thing with um, with with James. He's a very um, a solemn person. Oh, okay. But, um, I don't know what what could. Um, oh, you you can ask him if if you want to to see his brain meltdown. You can ask him about feminist glaciology papers. <laughs> I think we already did that with Peter, actually. So. <laughs> If you're just joining us, um, I hope that you've been with us for a while because we've been enjoying very much the company of Helen Pluckrose. And it has been an utter delight to have you on Watching America. And I would like to extend an invitation to have you on again to talk about whatever should be dear to your heart and mind. We would welcome it um, without reservation. Thank you, Helen, so much for joining us. Thank you. It's been lovely to talk to you, Alan. Likewise. Take care. God bless. Oh, sorry. Sorry. I'll allow it. Have a great day. (laughs) Have a good one. Bye-bye.